Father, thank you for love and grace that knows no bounds. Thank you that you're giving us an inheritance that is sealed in heaven through the Holy Spirit. A promise you've made and you will not break that promise. Abba, Father, give us insight into your word, the word that is truth, your mind on paper, and the influence it has on us. Isaiah 55, your thoughts are not our thoughts, but your word is like rain that waters the ground, like snow that nourishes the ground. Please, we sit at your feet. Our hearts are ready. Our ears are open. Bless your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Moses and the weight of marriage and ministry. It's going to be tough. Everybody turn to Exodus 17. Exodus 17. And we're going to begin at verse 8. And there's a little story that's so interesting. You will have a pop quiz. You're going to get a grade in just, in just a few minutes. So remember, we've had the Exodus. That's done. Uh, Israel is now on the move. They're now uh, engaging in faith and camping out and following the lead of Moses and following uh, God as he leads them with a pillar of fire and the cloud, all those things. And they're enduring the, this new way of life. How do we get food? How do we get water? And we now have the first recorded battle in Israeli history. This is the first engagement in combat. Now, Amalek is a tribal group in this region. And by the way, rumor probably got to Amalek's ears about some dude named Moses who wrote a song that made the Palestinian Caleb top 10 list. And it's something about defeating the Egyptians and there's like a cool music and the band and the drums and some song that Moses wrote. And they catch wind, a giant people group is on the move. Now, if you're an ancient Mediterranean person, that's bad because it's a battle of territory. It's a battle of, of acreage. And what are we going to do with this thing called an Israeli army? So Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. Amalek is the aggressor. So Moses said to Joshua, choose men for us and go out. Fight against Amalek tomorrow. I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up on the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held his hand up, and we're assuming the rod of God was in that hand, that Moses, or rather that Israel, prevailed. But when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. And Moses' hands were heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands. One on one side and one on the other. So his hands were steady until the sun set. And Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Moses' arms are getting heavy. They're getting tired. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial, memorial, and recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly wipe out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. They were a wicked people. 
And Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner. In Hebrew, Yehovah Nes, Yehovah Nisi. And he said, Because the Lord has sworn that the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. Wow. You ready? Let's, uh, let's look at this real quick. Pop quiz. You ready? What does it mean that Moses' arms were heavy and what does it mean that he held them up? Well, interpretation one, the raised staff, the raised arm of Moses refers to prayer. That's one. Secondly, raised staff refers to worship. You know, if we just worship God, whoop, whoop, come on, hands up, let's go, let's worship. Then, then all of a sudden our life is blessed. It's about worship. Or the raised staff is an apotropaic act. Strange word. What does it mean? It means it's an act or a gesture that somehow averts evil. Like a rabbit's foot or a good luck charm. So that's all it is. Four, by the way, uh, Mediterraneans absolutely believed in these things. The raised staff is a military gesture. We're going to fight. Raise your hand in war. Yeah. You know, William Wallace. Yeah. Let's go attack the enemies. Yeah. Raised, raised hands. Fight is on. Five, the raised staff exhausts Mo- Moses and he needs some practical help. He's just, he's got to get him up. And he's tired, and they're so heavy, you know, etc. He just needed help. This thing's about Moses. He just needs help. Or Moses standing between Joshua and her prefigures Jesus. Jesus on the cross. Or, number seven, the raised staff represents the prioritizing of God and his ability to bless obedience. Pop quiz. What is the correct interpretation? Someone say eight. <laughs> Actually, number seven looks pretty, uh, pretty good. Anybody else? Number seven? Combination of? Most of them, okay. Anybody else? If you had to pin one down, you got to say, that's it. What do you think? All of the above. All of the above. Jesus, that's a good answer, Maddie. What do you, what do you think? In number five. Yeah. Yeah. Amalek would, would prevail. Yeah. 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 So that's so good for it. So it looks like it's a combination of things. There's a real practical sense in which Moses, in as a gesture of obedience to God, is raising his arms and raising certainly the staff of God with that. So arms up, staff in one hand. And it's tiring, and he's weary, and when his arms go down, Amalek prevails. When his arms go up, Israel prevails, Joshua prevails. So there's something really practical there. But uh, someone else, I think, uh, Linda? They, weren't they engaged in battle when they saw his arms up, and they would not be entertained? That's interesting. Yeah, did they, did they stop fighting, or were they literally overpowered? That's really good, Linda, yeah. Yeah, uh, Kathy. I mean, I think it's mostly seven, but I think three is important. Three is important too. Yeah, yeah. Now remember, these Israelis are not us. They believe in gestures that somehow make things work. Yeah. Right, and then they know God is with them, and Moses is obedient. Yeah. So that meant a lot. It probably would have also had an impact on the 
of Amalek and the descendants, yeah. Sure. Something there, yeah, yeah. Um, Jay. Just a word quibble. Uh, his ability, his willingness to have been word there. Uh, say that, where are we? Uh, his willingness to bless obedience. Number seven, sorry. Oh, 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 oh. Um, yes, sure. That's a good way to word it. Good job. What else? What else, anybody? On what we're getting at? I, I think we're there, yeah. I think we're there. Certainly... Uh, there's hints of a military gesture. Certainly this is practical. Uh, I do not believe this prefigures Jesus. I don't believe that. Obviously there's three. Okay, Moses is the main guy. Sure, I think there's some commonality, but it really is, is not a prefiguring of Jesus because, because her and Joshua are certainly not evil men at all. So, all right, I absolutely, the prioritizing of God. Absolutely that. All right, let's keep going here. This is, this is 18 down to 7. This is fascinating. Uh, so the fight's over. And evidently, they're very close to where Jethro lives. And Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard about everything that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. And Jethro... Pay attention. Moses' father-in-law took in Moses' wife, Zipporah, after he had sent her away. Ooh, what is that about? And her two sons, one of whom was named Gershom, for Moses said, I've been a stranger in a foreign land, and the other name, Eliezer. Eliezer. Eliezer is the term used to describe the wife that God made for Adam. The God of my father was my help and saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was camped at the mountain of God. And he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and two sons, her two sons, your wife and her two sons with her. Interesting. Then Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other about their welfare and went into the tent. What is going on with Moses and Zipporah? Zipporah is identified as your wife and her two sons. That's really interesting. In verse 8, Moses told his father-in-law everything that the Lord had done. They chatted up. Verse 9, Moses, or rather Jethro, rejoiced over the goodness which the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. According to verse 10 and following, this is the first recorded act of Jethro worshiping God. The first recorded act the jester worships God. And he says, the Lord is greater than all gods. Indeed, it was proven when, he, when they acted insolently against the, the people, against Israel. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel 
to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law before God. They sat down and had a meal before God. Then it came about the next day that Moses sat down to judge the people. How many people? 600,000 men, wives and kids, a lot. Two million plus, a lot of people. And evidently men, unhappy men. Can I, can I, ladies, can I say something on your behalf? There ain't nothing worse than a whiny, complaining, griping man. So these unhappy males come to Moses. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And Moses, hi, oy vey, oy vey. Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. Oh, the weight of marriage and the weight of ministry. The weight of marriage and the weight of ministry. Now, when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this thing that you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge? And all the people stand before you from morning until evening. Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God, and when they have a dispute, it comes to me. And I judge between someone and his neighbor. Yeah, 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 yeah. Nothing worse than an angry, gripey, complaining man. They'll wear you out. And I have to judge between this man and his neighbor. In other words, they can't get along with each other. And make known the statutes of God and his laws. Then Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing that you are doing is not good. You will surely wear out both yourself and these people who are with you. Because the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. The weight of marriage and the weight of ministry is heavy. It is really heavy. And then counsel is given. Now Moses, listen to me. I will give you counsel. And God will be with you. You be the people's representative before God. And you bring the disputes to God. And then admonish them about the statutes and the laws and make known to them the way which they're to walk uh, uh, and, and the work that they're to do. Furthermore, you shall select out of the people. Notice the description. Able men who fear God, men of truth, who hate dishonest gain. Oh, yeah. Now there's a man's man. <laughs> Surround me with those kind of guys, please. But the whiny, complainy, gripey, fault finders. Abba, Father, have mercy on us. And you make these men leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. And let it be that they will bring to you every major matter. And they will judge every minor matter themselves. And this is brilliant. So it will be easier for you and they will carry the burden with you. Men are not designed to handle life alone. They're not. And if you do this thing, and God so commands you, then you'll be able to endure 
And all these people will go to their places in peace. Wow. Wow. Anybody here long for peace in your home? <laughs> you just, can we, can we just stop the drama mama? Can we just stop the drama mama stuff? Can we just stop the drama daddies? Can we not have peace in our homes? Peace in our churches? Peace in our, our state, our nation? Well, with the absence of able men who fear God, men who commit to truth, and men who can't be bought off with a bribe, men who hate dishonest gain, a nation will fall. Always will. It's just history. So verse 24 So Moses listened to his father-in-law and everything that he said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, leaders of thousands and hundreds and fifties and of tens. I want to go record on saying something, uh, and I mean this with my purest heart motives. Moses listened to his father-in-law. We need to pray for Stephen to listen to me because I'm his father-in-law. Do you know what he's done to me the last week? He hides. He hides. And he jumps out. He jumps out. And at 63, that's hard on my body. And adrenaline shoots through me from head to toe. And my kidneys go in shock. My kidneys go in shock. And what's next? I'm not going to say it. It's hard. I'm his, I gave him my daughter. Come on. Can I? This is hilarious. Can we do this real quick? Just a little gossip. It's not a big deal. It's about Stephen. It's okay. So this, this actually happened. Stephen and uh, the family and all, all 17, I mean all five kids, went to, to Branson to just have a little getaway. And you know how fathers, those special moments you gather your little kids together and it's, it's that moment and dad's gonna speak wisdom into the heart of his little charges and they're gonna grow and mature and, and he's gonna feel good about being the leader of his tribe. So Stephen gathers them all together and says, as only Stephen can say, I want all of my children to listen to me Promise you will always stay close and be best friends. If any of you need something, be there for each other. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that be oh, that was like a hallmark moment. Caroline says, I'm not going to meet your needs or answer your questions if I'm in the middle of surgery. <laughs> you have three others and you can go to them first. Stephen, it's hard. The weight of marriage and the weight. Oh, people. You have no idea. All right. Um, let's go to this one. Ready? Let's do a little timeline of Moses. Listen, it's going to get thick. Stay with me. Moses marries Zipporah according to Exodus chapter 2. Okay. After the Exodus 4 event, 
Moses apparently sends her away. Now, if you track with ancient Mediterranean language and the language recorded in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, that's the language of divorce. For an Israeli to get married, you know what he had to do? He had to write out a piece of paper that I'm sending you away. He sends her out the front door. He steps out into the front, front yard of the house and say to everyone there, I'm sending her away. And here's my writ of divorce. And at that point, he's divorced. That's how it was done in Israel. That odd language, Moses sends her away. Now, let's, let's take the positive track. Moses said, Zipporah and his two kids, look, sweetie, we're fighting the, you know, Pharaoh. It's going to get really ugly. And I really want you and the boys to be safe. So why don't you go back with, with father-in-law and, and be there and he'll keep you all safe. Can we do that? And she's like, yes, sweetheart. Thank you for wanting to protect us. Thank you. That could be track act. I don't think so. I think, I think the uglier track is what's going on. I think what happened in Exodus 4 was so offensive, Moses had enough. I think he had enough. I'm not saying he was right. Be careful. We can't make saints out of all these Old Testament figures, okay? Got to be real careful. I think there was a problem. She does not accompany Moses in the Exodus event at all. Were there females involved in the Exodus? Absolutely. All, all the other men had their wives. Why doesn't Moses have his? She returns. Here's, now, that was around 40 plus years of age-ish. Now around 80 plus years of age, boy does it get thick. Moses leads Israel, Exodus, from Egypt. And, and these timelines are very blurry. During the Exodus event, it says that a Cushite woman... And Moses married. This is from Numbers 12. Her name possibly is Tharbis, an Ethiopian princess. And that is based on Josephus, Antiquity of the Jews. And then in Exodus 18, Moses meets his wife again in visiting Jethro, and they're possibly divorced. Now, let me read this again. I want you to pay close attention to this. This is, this is the historical record of Moses seeing his wife for the first time in a long time. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was camped at the mountain of God. Then he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. Then Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and he bowed down and kissed him and they asked each other about their welfare and then went into Guillermo's to have some coffee and talk about it. No mention of saying, oh, Zipporah, oh, Zipporah, it's been so, come here little guys, come on, come on, oh my goodness, Gershom, you are, what a little man you are. Complete silence. Whatever it is, it is not healthy. All right, let's look at some summary statements about the weight of marriage and ministry for Moses. Number one, he flees Egypt and meets Jethro in Midian and marries Zipporah. And if you read closely, there's no descriptive language of desire 
preference or romance between Moses and Zipporah. None. Now, by the way, uh, ladies, it's harsh. But in this culture, uh, women are things you could own. You could have more than one. And, and so it's very, very different than our modern concepts of marriage and certainly our New Testament understanding of marriage. But it's just Jethro says, hey, you know, you want to live with us? And, yeah. And by the way, you want a wife? Here's one. And gives him Zipporah. And that's it. There's no courtship. There's no language of uh, Jethro. Zipporah is everything I've ever prayed about or dreamed nothing no descriptive language that's curious to me uh it's possible the first marriage ends in separation possibly divorce because of the language sends her away uh moses is fatigued and frustrated with pharaoh and leading two million plus people out of egypt there's a there's moses cries sometimes he's angry he does have a temper the most humble man is a temper. He cries. Uh, during the Exodus period, the most humble Moses, the scripture says he was the most humble man on the face of the earth. He marries Tharbis. I'll read, I'll read Josephus in a second. There's no language of restoration with Zipporah. Moses endures continual complaints and accusations by those who he is leading, those he is leading. That's hard. A man who's responsible and is a leader to be under constant criticism and constant accusation. And by the way, who are the people that are accusing him? Are they these, like those weird Israelis, you know, they're odd for God, those weird ones that you never want to be friends with? Is it those kind of Israelis in this two million plus people group? It's actually some of his closest people. Freddie, it's his own family. He's getting criticism and he's getting accused of this and that. And there's exaggeration and he is wearing out. He experiences exhaustion from holding his hands up during the battle with Amalek. He's experiencing exhaustion from adjudicating Israel complaints and their tribal disputes. By the way, if I could say something personal about my weight and the weight of marriage and the weight of ministry for me, I would say this. If there's something that's really hard on me, it's that particular church member that thinks they think they're serving God, but they're really not. They delight in being a problem exposer. That's their thing. They feel they're commissioned to expose Problems And guess what? They do virtually nothing to solve problems. You've got problem finders. <laughs> you've got problem makers. And you've got problem solvers. The finders and the makers wear me out. And it's been that way for 40 years. Typically the problem finders... Can I do a commercial for counseling? Do you mind? Typically, the problem finders and the problem makers have a history of trauma, attachment disorder. Something's going on in the background, spooling in the background, driving really hard offensive behaviors. And they won't deal with it. They won't deal with it. Or, or they are 
they're suffering from anosognosia. How's that for a cool word? Anosognosia. Which means they're not self-aware. Anosognosia means they have no awareness of their disease. In Greek, no awareness of your disease. Nothing. You can have a personality disorder, your, your BPD or something, or your bipolar, and you're not even aware of it. And it's like, you know, you, you pull the pin on the grenade, you throw it, you destroy your house, and then your wife and kids go, ah, what are you doing wrecking the place? And, and, and he goes, what? Did I do something? Problem finders, problem makers wear anybody out. They wear a wife out. They wear the kids out. Moses is told to develop a leadership hierarchy and delegate to godly men of truth. All right, Christ Church. Moses in the weight of marriage and ministry. I want to read this to you. This is what Josephus, uh, in his book, The Antiquities of the Jews, uh, Justin, you've read it many, many times. This is in uh, uh, book two, chapter 10, paragraph two, recording about this. While Moses was uneasy at the armies lying idle, being passive, and how this particular battle now with the Egyptians and the Ethiopians, Moses is involved in this battle, this unusual skirmish. Tharbis was the daughter of the king of the Ethiopians. She happened to see Moses as he led the army near the walls and how Moses fought with great courage and admiring the subtlety of his undertakings and believing him to be the author of success when they had before despaired of recovering their liberty. This is from the the oppression of the Egyptians. And to be the occasion of the great danger the Ethiopians were in, when they had boasted of their great achievements, seeing all this, quote unquote, she fell deeply in love with Moses. A Nubian beauty, an Ethiopian princess, falls deeply in love with Moses, and upon the prevalency of that passion, she sent to him the most faithful of all her servants to discourse with him about their marriage. She is the aggressor. She's madly in love, full of passion for Moses. She sends her most trusted associate, please meet Moses and tell him I love him and I want to marry him, please. (laughs) Upon that appeal, quote unquote, he thereupon accepted the offer. (laughs) On condition that she would procure the delivering up to the city. In other words, help. Let's beat the Egyptians. And give her the assurance of an oath to take her to, to be his wife. And that when he had taken possession of the city, he would not break his oath to her. And no sooner was the agreement made, but it took effect immediately. And when Moses had cut off the Egyptian, the Ethiopians, he gave thanks to God, consummated his marriage, and led the Egyptians back to their own land. It is possible. This is his second wife. There's some 
who conject that Zipporah and um, uh, Tharbis are the same? I don't think so. I don't think so. It's hard to be from Cush and be a Midianite at the same time. It's hard. It's interesting that possibly that in Moses' exhaustion and in his frustration that Tharbis is introduced into his life. And that the woman who is far more content with an argument is the one that he sends away. The weight of marriage and the weight of ministry is very, very heavy on Moses. By the way, uh, we can say confidently that uh, God can use a man in ministry who struggles in marriage. God can use a man in ministry who struggles in marriage. And God can use a man in marriage who struggles in ministry. All right, Christchurch. How do we pull this into our world today? How do we make sense of this so that we go, wow, I get it. By the way, I'm not leading two million people. Okay? And I promise you I'm no Moses. I promise you that. Um, but I get tired. I do. My, my people group is probably around 250 people. Um, if, if we put everybody active at Christchurch in here at the same time, same Sunday, no excuse, we couldn't see them. There's way more than, than what we can seat. And when you add to that the, uh, my caseload, 35 a week, 30 to 35 a week, and then you add to that other relationships that I have that are sustained through other churches that I've served in, it's probably about 250 people. Does it make me tired? Yes. Do my arms get weary? Yes. And I've got to tell you, it's the, it's the men, the godly men and the godly women in my life that help keep my arms up. Okay, enough. I want to hear from you. How do we live this out? Why does this matter? Because it's not in the Bible. <laughs> no, but the idea is there. The idea right. is well, there. Well, that's why I don't. It's but not yeah, like but that's. Seminary or anything. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, in fact, God consistently gives us more than we can handle, so we'll come running to Him. But but I get your heart. Yeah, I get yeah, it. Yeah, now I get it. Um, but I think that's a good 
If you find it, let me know. Uh, he found a manuscript, Justin, that nobody else knows about. That's so cool. Okay. Yes, yes. Uh, but anyway, uh, so throughout all that, it's, there, it's, we're just, we live in a society where we're so independent. And our relationship with God isn't just individual, it's corporate as well. Yeah. And we just need to be aware that, yes, he's going to ask us to do things. Yes that we will not be able to accomplish in our own yeah. self and that we will require others around us to help. Yes. Ladies, you answer only. Why is it so hard for a man to ask for help? Ladies only. Why? Jody, you're nodding. Pride. Pride. Anybody else? Pride. Anybody else? Pride. What's that, dear? Pride. Yeah, absolutely. Because, because if I ask for help, I'm admitting something. I'm not enough. I'm not enough. And a lot of men, the ego is so big that they will not get the help they need and they would rather, fu- they'd rather fail in privacy. They'd rather fail in independence than succeed in, in, in community. They'd rather fail privately than succeed in community. All right, listen, um, I, I, I got to tell you, uh, final personal comment and then I'm going to pray over you for God's favor um, when, when the Lord talked to me in 1997 about starting a church and 10 years later uh, Father's Day June 17 2007 Christ Church started in our living room and I had no idea how much healing I needed to go through from being a part of large churches mega churches and deacon boards that were flat out dangerous, dangerous, and staff and senior pastors who were dangerous, and the toll it took on me. Lisa, we won't say his name, but there was one when I was a young man, and this guy, he was horrible, horrible. Talk about a problem exposer and a narcissist. Man, this senior pastor was a narcissist. I was seeing a doctor for cardiac stress when I was 26 years of age. What? Crazy. The weight of of marriage and the weight of ministry is heavy. It's heavy on a pastor. It's heavy that I'm supposed to be everything to Lisa. And I'm supposed to be everything to my children. And everything to my grandchildren. And then I've got to be everything to you. and, And to feel like I'm doing it all and doing it all well. It's really hard. And sometimes my arms get tired. The people who are the problem exposers and the problem makers, whoo, talk about make me want to drop my arms. Man, there it is. But you know what? The person who doesn't give time and doesn't give a dime can be the most dangerous people because no commitment. They don't give a dime, they don't give a time, Sharon. But man, if they've got a platform... They'll go for the juggler. But the people who have a heart for the ministry, who have a heart, Freddie, for the gospel, I know you do. I know you love Jesus, Freddie. A heart for the gospel, and they're broken by their own humanity, are some of the best leaders. Because they're men of truth. And they're men who refuse dishonest gain and cheat, and they work through the pride issues. 
And there are men who know how to be a team player. And you guys bring me sanity so that I can endure. I want to say thank you to every single one of you. Thank you. You you guys, you do give time and you do give a dime and you care and you share for the vision of, of this thing called Christ Church. And I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for Lisa. 40 years of uh, putting up with crazy deacons. <laughs> Man, she's endured a lot. You might wonder, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out in a limb with you. If I'm in trouble, I'm in trouble. All right. Oy vey. Uh, you know why Lisa's quiet sometimes? Because 40 years of church members who will stab you in the back in a New York minute. That's why. Yeah. Yeah. It can be hard. Those who say your best buddies and friends and then right in the back. It's hard. It's hard. Boy, we need each other. Thank you for the being, being the people I can count on. Thank you so much. I want to pray over you. Abba, Father, you told Moses and you told Aaron to bless your people. And I dare to say the words you gave Aaron. Lord, bless your people. Lord, lift up your face on these people. Lift up your countenance on these people and bless them and give them peace through your son, Jesus. In his name, amen.